I'd like to read a couple of verses from Psalm 28, where we read these words. Blessed be the Lord, because he has heard the voice of my supplication. The Lord is my strength and my shield. My heart trusts in him, and I am helped. Therefore my heart exalts, and with my song I shall thank him. Father, from our hearts we give you thanks for all that you do for us each and every day. So often, Father, we go through each day and we forget that the very strength to have lived that day has come from you. And to realize that every blessing is from you. The Father of lights provides us with every good and perfect gift. Lord, I pray that this will be constantly in our minds, that we'll just have a hearts of thanksgiving, we'll, we'll have a nature that offers praise for all that you do. Lord, even in the hard times, because many times we face difficult uh, tasks and difficult conditions, and yet even as we are reading and studying here in 1 Samuel, uh, through these difficulties you raised up uh, your will and your purpose and men and women of your kingdom. So Lord, I pray that we will constantly be in, in tune with what your Spirit is doing. Lord, be with us here this morning and guide us in our understanding of your Word. And as the word is proclaimed throughout this property today, we ask that you will be glorified. In Jesus' great name, amen. If you'll turn to 1 Samuel chapter 16. 1 Samuel chapter 16. Now the Lord said to Samuel, How long will you grieve over Saul, since I have rejected him from being king over Israel? Fill your horn with oil and go. I will send you to Jesse the Bethlehemite, for I have selected a king for myself among his sons. But Samuel said, How can I go? When Saul hears of it, he will kill me. And the Lord said, Take a heifer with you, and say, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. And you shall invite Jesse to the sacrifice, and I will show you what you shall do. And you shall anoint for me the one whom I designate to you. So Samuel did what the Lord said, and came to Bethlehem. And the elders of the city came trembling to meet him and said, Do you come in peace? And he said, In peace. I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Consecrate yourselves and come with me to the sacrifice. He also consecrated Jesse and his sons and invited them to the sacrifice. Then it came about when he entered that he looked at Eliab and thought, Surely the Lord's anointed is before him. But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not look at his appearance or at the height of his stature, because I have rejected him. For God sees not as man sees, for man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. Then Jesse called Abinadab and made him pass before Samuel, and he said, Neither has the Lord chosen this one. Next Jesse made a Shammah pass by, and he said, Neither has the Lord chosen this one. Thus Jesse made seven of his sons pass before Samuel, but Samuel said to Jesse, the Lord has not chosen these. And Samuel said to Jesse, Are these all the children? And he said, There remains yet the youngest. Behold, he's tending the sheep. Then Samuel said to Jesse, Send and bring him, for we will not sit down until he comes here. So he sent and brought him in. Now he was ruddy, with beautiful eyes and a handsome appearance. And the Lord said, Arise and anoint him, for this is he. Then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers. And the Spirit of the Lord came mightily upon David from that day forward. And Samuel arose and went to Ramah. 
Two weeks ago, we studied this passage and discovered that because Saul had disobeyed, because Saul had not trusted in the Lord, the Lord had rejected him from being king over Israel. Therefore, what the Lord did was to pick his prophet Samuel and send him on yet another mission to find and anoint a man to replace Saul as king. God guided Samuel to Bethlehem and guided him ultimately to the house of Jesse the Bethlehemite. You remember as we read this morning, as he walked into the house, Samuel saw Eliab standing there and he was tall and he was handsome and he was regal. And Samuel said, certainly this is the one that God has chosen. But to Samuel's surprise, the Lord said, no, I have not chosen Eliab. And then he gave us that, that wonderful verse there, verse 7, where God said, do not look at his appearance or at the height of his stature, because I have rejected him. For God sees not as a man sees. For man looks at the outward appearance, but God looks at the heart. It's one of the great truths of Scripture, and one we need to remember all the time, because we live in a society where performance is everything, and, and, and it's how you look, not who you are. But God doesn't pay attention to how we look. He's not impressed, but he looks at who we are in the heart. Samuel reviewed seven sons. Nope, nope, nope. <laughs> Abinadab and Shaman, the, the other four, not even named as they came before Samuel. And I think when the seven had passed and the line came to an end and there was nobody else, Samuel was kind of frustrated, you know. And so he turned to Jesse and says, do you have any more sons? <laughs> I mean, God clearly said to me, it's one of your sons. And he said no to all of these. And Jesse replied, well, yes, there's the youngest, but he's out tending the sheep. And I think Jesse had already made a determination in his mind that this son couldn't possibly be the one. After all, he's nothing but a lowly shepherd. So how could he be the one? He's the youngest of all of my sons. Well, Samuel requested that David be brought before him because unless he misheard God, <coughs> David was the only choice left because God had clearly said no to each of the seven that had paraded by him already. So Samuel said to him, to Jesse, we're not going to sit down to this wonderful dinner that has been prepared until you bring David here and we hear the word of the Lord. What did Jesse think? And I think Jesse was a bit skeptical here. Samuel tells him to send for your, for your, your son who's out tending the sheep. And he's like, well, I don't think he's, my, he's the best choice, but uh, if, if Samuel says so, I'll have him come. And so he sent a servant out to fetch David from the sheep. How far away was David? Well, hopefully not too far. It would have been a long time before they ate. <laughs> In this passage, we find that David was physically attractive. As we read about him there, as, as David was brought in, we read that he was ruddy. He had beautiful eyes and a handsome appearance. He had not been, however, prior to this, seriously considered as a candidate for God's call. And he, he probably didn't even know what was happening. He probably hadn't been told that Samuel was here and the other brothers were all being paraded in front of him for whatever purpose Samuel was there to uh, accomplish. From the human point of view, God often picks the unlikely person to serve him in a capacity that we would have selected someone else for. I, th I think the Lord tells us this very clearly 
I'd like to read in 1 Corinthians, the first chapter. 1 Corinthians, the first chapter, uh, beginning at verse 26. Paul, of course, is, is writing to the church at Corinth, which was a church in a very difficult situation. A church that was located in a city that would have been sort of like Le Reno and Las Vegas and Atlantic City and just about every other uh, mecca of human paradise you can think of all rolled into one. And he says to the people there, For consider your calling, brethren, that not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble, but God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. And God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things which are strong. And the base things of the world and the despised, God has chosen. The things that are not, that he might nullify the things that are. That no man should boast before God. But by his doing, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God in righteousness and sanctification and redemption. That just as it is written, let him who boasts boast in the Lord. I think one of the strongest words that comes down through all the pages of history is that God will humble the proud and will exalt the humble. And it isn't because God is a glory hog and uh, he, he just, you know, desires all the glory for himself and doesn't want to share it with anybody. It's God is simply proclaiming reality. He is the Almighty One. He is all and in all. And, and for any of us who are His creatures to, to, to act as if we are somebody because we have done this is total folly. It's, it's not destructive simply because God has said it is destructive, but because of who we are and how we're made and how we relate in society, we, we self-destruct if, if we exalt ourselves and we're not able to accomplish anything. Just, just look at Hollywood and look at all these, these, these people. They're constantly self-destructing. And, and then we have a, a really poignant uh, statement made in Psalm 78. We read these words, just a brief passage at the very end of the 78th Psalm. He, that's God, also chose David his servant and took him from the sheepfold and from the care of the ewes with suckling lambs he brought him to shepherd Jacob his people and Israel his inheritance. So he shepherded them according to the integrity of his heart and guided them with skillful hands. There's a lot of things that are being said in that psalm. But, but one thing is that it wasn't a lowly position to be a shepherd in God's eyes because David, because, uh, as a result of his having been a shepherd, knew how to take care of the weak and the young and those in need. And, and this is an image of God who tells us that we're to watch out for the widows and the orphans and those that are weak and lowly in our society. As that's what we do as, as believers. And, and that simply exhibits the character of God. And so the Lord is saying that in David I have someone who reflects my character, who has the shepherd heart that I have for my people, Israel. And where he was shepherding uh, ewes and lambs before, now he's going to shepherd my people, Jacob. David, we're told, was ruddy. The Hebrew word here actually means reddish in complexion, that he had beautiful eyes, that he was handsome in appearance. But he was young, and he was unimposing. 
when, when Sammy first walked into the room and saw the eldest son, Eliab, now Eliab was, was tall and, and regal in appearance. And I, I, I rather picture David as probably shorter than Eliab, not because he was a child, but simply because, you know, his genes made him a little shorter <laughs> than, uh, than Eliab. But his name was imposing. David's name means beloved of the Lord. Beloved of the Lord. What a name. And what is totally unique about it is David is used only once in Scripture of one man. You find no other person in Scripture named David. It's kind of amazing, isn't it? David is a unique man. And of course, we, we, we see of him in, in some ways as a type of Messiah because the Lord would establish his, his throne forever through David. In front of his father and all of his brothers, Samuel brought David forward, poured the anointing oil on his head, and proclaimed him to be the future king of Israel. I think David was embarrassed. I don't think David said, yeah, you know. I, I, I think David felt his place. All of his older brothers are standing around him and his father and Eliab. <laughs> I think if the brothers were not afraid of Samuel, they would have just laughed out loud. You're anointing the kid. It's got to be ridiculous in their eyes. We're going to have to pay homage one day to our kid brother? Oh, my goodness. I don't know if the Lord brought to their attention, but I hope he did. The story of Joseph and, and that they could have thought about that for a little bit and, and realized that uh, the attitude that uh, Joseph's older, older brothers had towards Joseph came back to rebound on them later in, in a very, very difficult way. We know that later on when David shows up at the war camp, his brothers kind of, you know, give him a bad time for showing up there. Well, who are you? I and mean, what are you telling about how we ought to fight this war, you know? So I, I think they had a problem. Hopefully that problem went away later, but uh, I think they had one. Of course, the key statement here in this whole passage is found in verse 13 where we read, And the Spirit of the Lord came mightily upon David from that day forward. The anointing of David would have been a joke if that statement hadn't been there. If that hadn't been a reality, it would have been a joke. Pick this, this shepherd, youngest of his whole family, to be the next king of Israel. But you know, really, this is no less true of us. These, these stories, of course, are in the Old Testament so that we will learn the lessons that we need to know about how we ought to live uh, each day. You and I may never hold a place of honor or a place of power uh, in this life, but our lives are of great significance. If we are walking in obedience to the Lord and are empowered by the Holy Spirit, wherever God has put us, we are His, His chosen vessel in that place. But it takes an obedient heart. It takes humility as, as David had here. And, and of course, we take heart in David because when we think of David, we don't always just think of a mighty man of God. We always think of David and his failures, too. And that helps us to understand God knows that we all have feet of clay. That doesn't excuse us, of course. But it helps us to realize that uh, we have hope and that when we fail, we don't just toss ourselves into the, you know, into the junk basket of history. We, we pick up and we move on in his strength. At the end of verse 13, we read that Samuel arose and went to Ramah. Since I have this here, I might as well just remind us of the uh, locations here. Here's Bethlehem right down here. 
Uh, Bethlehem is, is just about, depends on how big Jerusalem is at the time, but you know, somewhere between four and six miles south of Jerusalem. In those days, it would have been at least six miles because Jerusalem was just a teeny little place. You know, we, we always have this vision. I, I can't, shouldn't say we always have, but we often have this vision of Jerusalem with mighty walls, you know, in this great glorious city. It was just a little burg. <laughs> you know, Jerusalem in the days we're talking about is smaller than the property upon which we sit here on this church campus. It was only a few acres. It would have later, of course, become larger. And in, in the days of Suleiman, uh, the Magnificent in the 15th century, the, the Turkish Sultan who, who built all the upper walls that you will see today when you go to Jerusalem, the city was about a square mile. That's 640 acres. And that was at least as large, maybe even larger than it was in Jesus' day. So Jerusalem today, of course, is a very large city. It's a city of a, over a third of a million people. And I don't know how many square miles, but West Jerusalem, which is the new city, is much larger. If you look at a map of Jerusalem, and let me just describe something. You, know, have, you have a map of Jerusalem here. The old city is right over here, you know, this. And then you have this whole city today. Um, but that's, of course, modern, modern Jerusalem. He left Bethlehem then, and he went back up to Ramah, which is right about up in there. I can't hold this thing still enough for you to get the exact location, but you know. This, this is some people's idea of where Ramah is located, but most, most historical geographers of this don't believe that that's the Ramah of Samuel, because it right over here. Because just north of Jerusalem, there is a hill, and on this hill is a mosque, but it's called Nabi Samuel, the prophet Samuel. And it is the traditional site of the burial of, uh, of Samuel. And uh, that was believed to be, well, it, Scripture tells us, in Ramah. So um, that was just a few miles north of, uh, of Jerusalem. So it, it's just a journey, a day's journey. So it wasn't too difficult for Samuel to, to go back home. He didn't have to stay at uh, Jerusalem Motel 6 or anything uh, along the way. <clears throat> Samuel will be mentioned once more couple of times actually. Samuel is not mentioned in 2 Samuel at all, which is kind of uh, interesting. Commentator Ronald Youngblood says, the anointing of David was the capstone of Samuel's career. The capstone of Samuel's career. It, it reminds me of Ananias and you know, those uh, when, when Jesus was, was born and, and that they'd been waiting to see the Messiah and finally God brings the baby and, and uh, Ananias and what's the lady's name? <laughs> what's that? Simeon and Anna. Oh. Yeah, there I. <laughs> I did. I know. <laughs> yes, Ananias and Sapphira were waiting to see, and they held the baby. Simeon and Anna. There we go. And, and so it was in many ways for Samuel, you know, to finally see the Lord's anointed, having been anointed. The baton was passed, you might say, and the spiritual of leadership of Israel has been transferred from Israel's first prophet to Israel's greatest king. And it will be many years, however, before David will actually be, be, be crowned king but during that time, he will be shaped for being king by having been put through the 
crucible of unjust persecution at the hands of his predecessor, Saul. Now, I think one of the questions that can be asked at this point, because we've read about how Saul was anointed, we've read about how David was anointed, how did the coming of the Holy Spirit upon David differ from the coming of the Holy Spirit upon Saul? Well, I, I think the coming may not have differed much, but the reception was very different. It seems quite clear that Saul did not willingly accept the presence of God in his life, the presence of the Spirit of God, and he did not yield to the authority of God. That's why he kept doing the wrong thing and then making excuses for himself. But in David's case, we have a man who humbly submitted to the Lord and sought God's will throughout his life, however imperfectly. It, it keeps boiling down to what is the real attitude of the heart. We keep going back to that seventh verse. God doesn't look in the outward appearance, but God looks on the heart. David will do foolish things. David will do things for which people are executed today. And yet God will see him as the one whose heart is really for the Lord. There's a, there's a passage which illustrates this in the 89th Psalm, and I'd like to read it. It's, it's a little bit long, but it's very poignant. In the 89th Psalm, beginning at uh, verse 19, we read these words. Once you did speak in vision to your godly ones and did say, I have given help to the one who is mighty, I have exalted one chosen for my people. I have found David my servant. With my holy oil I have anointed him. With whom my hand will be established, my arm will also strengthen him. The enemy will not deceive him, nor the son of wickedness afflict him. But I shall crush his adversaries before him and strike those who hate him. And my faithfulness and my loving kindness will be with him. Now, I mean, that is an awesome promise. God says, my faithfulness and my loving kindness, and you go back to the days of Moses, and when Moses was given those words by God as he stood on Mount Horeb, Mount Sinai, I mean, we're talking about an incredible promise. My faithfulness and my loving kindness will be with him, and in my name his horn will be exalted. I shall also set his hand on the sea and his hand on the rivers. He will cry to me, thou art my father, my God, and the rock of my salvation. I also shall make him my firstborn and the highest of the kings of the earth. My loving kindness <clears throat> will keep him forever. My covenant shall be confirmed to him. So I will establish his descendants forever, his throne as the days of heaven. If his sons forsake my law and do not walk in my judgments, if they violate my statutes and do not keep my commandments, then I will visit their transgression with the rod and their iniquity with stripes. And, and most of you are familiar with uh, the story of the kings, first and second kings. And we read of how David's sons and descendants so often did not walk in God's ways. But notice what God says in verse 33, but I will not break off my loving kindness from him, that is David, nor deal falsely with my, in my faithfulness. My covenant I will not violate, nor will I alter the utterance of my lips. Once I have sworn in by my holiness, I will not lie to David. His descendants shall endure forever, his throne as the sun before me. 
It shall be established forever like the moon, and the witness in the sky is faithful. And of course, we know that that eternal establishment is through the Messiah, Jesus, who was the son of David. Also, in uh, Acts chapter 13, a couple of verses I'd like to read here. Verse 21. And then they asked for a king, and God gave them Saul, son of Kish, a man of the tribe of Benjamin, for forty years. And after he had removed him, he raised up David to be their king, concerning whom he also testified and said, I have found David, the son of Jesse, a man after my heart, who will do all my will. Just think, what kind of a statement that is from, that, from Almighty God. It's a powerful statement. Again, I think it should be noted that except for a brief cameo appearance in the 19th chapter of uh, 1 Samuel, Samuel disappears from the scene. Samuel is not heard of again until he dies, which occurs in the 25th chapter of 1 Samuel. He's done his job. He's retired. I don't think he retired in the sense of sitting on his veranda and, you know, growing roses, although there's not a thing wrong with growing roses. But I think he still ministered, but, but he's not center stage um, anymore. Well, let's read on in the 16th chapter of 1 Samuel, verse 14. This is a, a almost, in, in some ways, a little bit enigmatic um, passage. Now the spirit of the Lord departed from Saul, and an evil spirit from the Lord terrorized him. Saul's servants then said to him, Behold now, an evil spirit from God is terrorizing you. Let our Lord now command your servants who are before you. Let them seek a man who is a skillful player on the harp. And it shall come about when the evil spirit from God is on you, that he shall play the harp with his hand, and you will be well. So Saul said to his servants, Provide for me now a man who can play well, and bring him to me. Then one of the young men answered and said, Behold, I have seen a son of Jesse the Bethlehemite. Huh? Just, just happened to see this man, who is skillful musician, a mighty man of valor, a warrior, one prudent in speech, and a handsome man, and the Lord is with him. So Saul sent messengers to Jesse and said, Send me your son David, who is with the flock. And Jesse took a donkey loaded, loaded with bread and a jug of wine and a goat and sent them to Saul by David his son. Then David came to Saul and attended him, and Saul loved him greatly, and he that is David, became Saul's armor bearer. And Saul sent to Jesse, saying, Let David now stand before me, for he has found favor in my sight. So it came about, whenever the evil spirit from God came to Saul, David would play the harp and play it with his hand, and Saul would be refreshed and be well, and the evil spirit would depart from him. It was through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit that Samuel was able to recall and record the supernatural cause of this great psychological depression that had come upon Saul. This passage should not be construed to imply that mental depression is always caused by an evil spirit. However, in Saul's case, this was certainly true because the scripture specifically says that it was true. Saul had rejected the spirit of the Lord he had disobeyed. He had not listened to God speak to him. And therefore, the Holy Spirit left him. The Holy Spirit departed from him. 
No longer was the Spirit there to speak to him, to attempt to use him. Now, we all know that God is almighty, and God could have made Saul into a puppet, you know, doing whatever God's Spirit said, but God doesn't work that way. God works through willing, submissive, humble hearts. It's one of the reasons why the Scripture tells us that it's very difficult for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Because rich people gen generally depend on their riches, their wealth, their might, their power, and, and they don't need God. So what happened was, in the place of the Holy Spirit came an evil spirit. This evil spirit did not issue forth from God, because God is not the creator of evil, nor is he the source of evil. But God allowed or directed or commanded the evil spirit, of which there were millions and billions probably, uh, blanketing planet Earth, commanded this one to oppress Saul, or gave him permission to do so. And the scripture tells us that the this, this spirit terrorized Saul, terrorized him. That Saul's servants seemed to recognize the source of his problem was not due to the fact that they were men of great spiritual insight. Oh, I perceive that an evil spirit has been sent by God. But due to the fact that in the ancient world, there was a tendency to blame every unforeseen and unexplainable thing upon the spiritual realm. To blame gods or spirits, good or evil, as responsible for anything you couldn't explain. So I think that's what we've got here, is these guys are saying, well, there's, a, there's an evil spirit from God sent. You know, that's because that's the way they diagnosed everything in those days. Samuel, however, was given insight so that he knew exactly that that was true. Now, these servants of Saul were possibly his, his officers in his court, his bodyguard maybe, and they advised him to, to find a musician because if you can find an excellent musician, he can charm the spirit into leaving him or at least leaving him alone. The 19th century German commentator Delitzsch uh, says this, the powerful influence exerted by music upon the state of the mind was well known even in the earliest times, so that the wise men of ancient Greece recommended music to soothe the passions, to heal mental illnesses, and even to check tumults among the people. Music to quiet the crowd. I don't think the music that they're referring to is the popular music of today's America. <laughs> because that music does not quiet the crowd <laughs> and it does not soothe. It fractures. It blows out eardrums. I really personally feel it's from the pit. You know, anytime somebody tries to tell us that in the Old Testament, in the Psalms, they always played all these musical instruments and therefore, you know, there was all this music. Yeah, I, I agree. But we have to remember, there was no electronic amplification <laughs> and it was performed outdoors. So it didn't, it didn't pummel you to death. It didn't pound you into the wall, you know. Saul's servants recommended that a harp player be found, a lyre. The Hebrew word is kinner, which uh, <coughs> you roughly see the shape of a kinner right here because this is Lake Kinneret, shaped like kinner, harp-shaped, roughly. <laughs> um, the harp we're talking about is, is a handheld instrument made out of wood. It was asymmetrical so that it was 
you know, you, know, you all have seen harps and the strings have to be made of different lengths to have different uh, vibrations and, and so you have a bass here with the strings attached to a sloping top and this gives different lengths of string uh, and, and then of course this instrument was strummed or plucked. There was, as far as, as far as they've been able to discover, there were no bows in the ancient world, no kind of a bowed uh, instruments. It was always stringed instruments were always strummed or, or plucked uh, in, the, in the ancient world. Well, Saul thought this was a good idea. He thought that his servant's suggestion was a good one. And so he commanded that a lyre player be found. Now, what happened next might be considered by some to be collusion or at least extreme coincidence. But I think it's very highly unlikely that Saul's young servant who would recommend David to him, that he knew anything about David having been anointed to be Saul's successor. I don't think that was broadcast. And David wasn't telling anybody uh, because he knew his life would have been in danger, to put it mildly. And so th this was not something that this man thought about. Aha, I remember David's been anointed king. Why don't I suggest David? No, I don't think so. And also it seems very unlikely that out of the hundreds or possibly thousands of Israelites that knew how to play the lyre, that this servant just happened to know David, who happened to have been anointed to be Saul's successor. I don't think so. I think this is a clear demonstration of the foreknowledge of God. God knows the end from the beginning. He puts the people in the places he wants them ahead of time for everything to happen when it's supposed to happen. I totally disagree with uh, one of the pastors in this town who has said that God does not understand or God does not know the future and he just reacts to what happens. That is not God. That's not a God. That's what we do. <laughs> That's, of course, an attempt to explain why everything that we ask God to do doesn't happen when we want it to happen. You know? God is not taken by surprise. God had purposely placed this young man in Saul's household, close enough to Saul, so when the time came, he would make the right recommendation. Verse 18, I think, also dispels the often presented view of David as a mere child. Saul's servant described David as a skilled musician. I realize that young children can be fairly skilled. There are prodigies, which, of course, was the primary concern at the moment. But, but read on as to what he says. He went on to imply that David would be a significant addition to your household because of, first of all, he was a mighty man of valor, of bravery. He doesn't say he's a brave little kid who picked on his older brother. You know? He says he's a mighty man of valor. He goes on to say that he was a warrior, which is trans that same word is translated other places as an experienced fighter. Thirdly, he's a discerning and articulate speaker, implying, of course, that he might be a good advisor or that he might be a good negotiator to have in Saul's household. And then on top of all his abilities, he's handsome. So he's going to be pleasant to be around you, and he'll make your court all the more enviable. Then lastly, he says, and the Lord is with him. How does Saul's servant determine that the Lord is with David? How does he know that the Lord is with David? Well, God could have inspired him to say that, and he may have said it without knowing what he was saying. But I don't really think that's so. I think in this case that this event occurs far enough after the anointing of David to be 
the king, and the coming of the Spirit of the Lord upon David, that he had experienced David in subsequent months and maybe even years, and come to know him as a man of God, as a man whose life demonstrated the presence of God in his life. I think in order for the presence of the Spirit of God to be so obvious in his life, David had to be living humbly and obediently. I really believe that unless a person is really blind, they will never consider somebody to be godly who is not humble. I just don't think godliness and pride go together. And I know from Scripture it doesn't. And so I think David was a, was a humble man and obedient to the things of God. And this was obvious to others. And, and this serves, it, does it not, as a challenge to us. If people who know us don't see that the Lord is with us, it may mean that we are not walking humbly and obediently with the Lord. All of us know this passage. Let me just quote a little part of it in Micah 6, 8. We're told, what does the Lord require of us but to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly before our God. To walk humbly before our God. Humility is not a natural human trait. We've probably all discovered that by now. And, and we know that it is, it is from God. Because even those people whom the world looked down upon as, as being riffraff can have pride. Pride a, a, is, a, is a human infection. It, it comes out of the pit, of course. That's why Satan fell, because of his pride. Uh, I want to be like the Most High. So David ex uh, exhibited that. And I, I think that's a challenge to us every day, to remember that we are who we are because of him, and not because of anybody else. And one of the biggest roadblocks or stumbling blocks that I know of for people coming to the Lord is that they will say, I don't need God because I am the man I've made myself to be or I'm the woman. Again, I think it is not, in verse 18, is not a description of a 10 or 12-year-old <laughs> kid, which is the way David is often portrayed in Sunday school literature. I remember it from being a child. I've looked at some of the video strips that we, uh, not video strips, film strips that we used to show, showing David, you know. He was a little guy out there with his little sling, bopping this big guy in the head with a rock. Donatello, who is one of the greatest um, Renaissance bronze artists, uh, made uh, what is probably one of the uh, most famous statues of David. It's, it's, a, it's a bronze, oh, about five foot tall. And he shows David as a pre-adolescent with this sword, you know, big as he is, uh, and the head of Goliath. And, you know, we have that, that picture. But I think we're talking about a young adult here. We're talking about a man who's probably around 20 years of age, if not more. He's fully developed. He's fully grown. He's not a weakling. Um, when he goes out and hits Goliath with a rock in the head, Goliath's been hit with a rock. I mean, this guy can throw it. And so I think we need to, to see David as, as a man from the beginning, that when he was anointed, as a man and who, as a man, walked with God and became God's chosen leader for Israel. Well, I, I need to stop here, and, and we'll pick up there uh, next time. John, can I ask a question? Yes, you may. How much time do you think it was from the time that he was anointed to the time that he was brought into Saul's presence? 
There is really no way of telling. Personally, I, I believe it was probably measured in definitely months, possibly even a few years. As I've mentioned to you before, the, the Hebrews did not have the Greek penchant for chronology and for time, dealing with time and trying to fill it up and put everything in chronological order that was not a Hebrew way of thinking. And so we have a hard time uh, figuring these things out. And uh, when, when you keep reading numbers in Scripture, you keep saying it was 30 years or 40 years. And you think, whoa, you know, everything sure happened in nice, even numbers. I, these, these, I think, are rounded off numbers. Might have been, it's like when it says Jesus was about 30 when he began his ministry. Well, if you compute it all in there, he was probably 35 by the time he actually began his ministry and probably was crucified around 38 years of age, actually. Because of what we know of secular history fitting it in with, with Scripture, it seems to be what it has to be. So uh, there's not, I, I think we're talking about a year or two, but beyond that, it's, it's just speculation.